the Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 4, is where we are, current teaching series, How It Changes Everything, title of this weekend's message, Unshakable. Hey, before we dive into this, uh, any uh, ladies happy that your husbands and sons are gone for the weekend? Yeah? Wish they were gone more often? Would you like for us to plan more trips for them? You guys are laughing. There was a few in the earlier service that were, they were quite a bit happier. And so we prayed with them at the end of the service. Now they'll be back this afternoon. Good to have them back and uh, pray for their safe return. I know they're having a great time up there. Uh, There's a young couple that just got married a week ago yesterday that I'd like to introduce to you. Jacob and Joanna Hale. Would you guys stand right back over there? Let's give them a hand. Cool. You guys still on your honeymoon? Yeah. She said no, you said yes. Cool, I like that. God bless you guys. Good to see you. Where were you last Sunday? Right after your wedding. You should have been in church, okay? I'm kidding. You guys were on your honeymoon. You guys had a great wedding. It's good. A lot of fun. Let's talk about this idea of being unshakable. Earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, floods... Forest fires still going on have been headline news since the beginning of this year. I don't know if you've paid attention, but it's been pretty disturbing. A lot of crazy stuff happening, which it reminds us that we live in a fallen world and that none of us are immune to crisis or catastrophe. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 24 through 29, it says this, that that which can be shaken will be shaken, so that which cannot be shaken, will remain. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says it's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of shaking that's going to happen in our lives so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. In fact, that which will remain, in fact, the Bible tells us this, and these verses tell us this, Hebrews chapter 12, tells us that Christians have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You and I uh, have a kingdom, have this relationship with God that cannot be shaken no matter what happens to our lives. It cannot be shaken. It's our stability. It's our stamina. It's our strength. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, I'm sure you have. I, I, don't, I haven't seen one in a long time, but when I was a little boy, I remember seeing this at my cousin's house, and it was one of these little big, it's actually a big punching doll where you'd punch it in the face and it would go down and then come back up. It's just kind of, kind of a big plastic ball. How many have ever seen that before? And uh, what a sick toy to give to your kids, huh? Punch this thing that looks like a person right in the face, and they'll always keep coming back, so just keep punching it. But uh, it, was, it was fun punching it, but what was interesting about that, the big plastic punching doll bouncing back. It kept bouncing back, and this is one of those bouncing back moments in the life of the early church, the first century church, is they take a hit and they bounce back. And you're going to see it time and time again. How many remember, I think it's been a couple years now that I showed this video of, uh, it was actually advertising, I think, diet soda or some sort of soda, but these guys were taking a hit and each time they took a major hit, they said, I'm good, I'm good. And it was kind of an interesting, they were kind of bouncing back. Uh, let me show you the video. It's, a, it's about a 30 second commercial. Check this out. Basically, it's about symmetry. Uh, oh. I'm good. Be honest here, man. Ah, fuck yeah. I'm good. My bad. I'm good. I'm the man! 
No! Men can take anything. I'm good. Except the taste of Diet Cola. Okay. <laughs> okay, there you have it. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I don't, I don't think they really are good, but it's almost kind of one of those bouncing back moments in the church. I'm good. Now, how, how is that possible? Um, it is a historical fact that the first century Christians met persecution, imprisonment, and death with astonishing courage. We talked about that last weekend, courage under fire. We're going to dive into that just a little bit deeper. We have an opportunity to look at their prayer here as a result of this, uh, of this persecution. And the persecution is only going to get worse. So where did they get that ability to bounce back, to be able to say, hey, I'm good. I'm going to make it through this. They had an experience that made them unshakable. And we're going to look at this experience that they had that made them unshakable. In fact, here's the thesis statement for this morning's weekend service and the, the title of this, Unshakable. If I am shaken by God, I will be unshaken by this world and become a shaker of this world. That's the thesis statement. We're going to look at each of those different thoughts. So if I am shaken by God, in fact, to the degree that you are shaken by God is to the degree that you will be unshaken by this world and become a shaker of this world. We'll look at the implications. What does it mean to be shaken by God? What does it mean to be unshaken by the world? And then what does it mean to be a shaker of this world? That's where we're headed with our study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment once again. Go before the throne of grace with confidence, not based on our righteousness, but based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. God, we're thankful. Father in heaven, we love you. We're here to worship you. Your glory and beauty is breathtaking. Your goodness and grace ravishes our hearts. There's absolutely nothing we want more than to love you, to enjoy you, to walk with you, to know and make you known through our lives. So we pray that you would shake us this morning through the study of your word so that we will learn what it means to be unshaken by this world and then in turn shake this world for you and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Let's work through this text. I'm going to read and try to make a few comments. I'll make a few comments as we work through this. But Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 23, and when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Okay, let me bring you up to speed. I've got to do that if you haven't been with us and you weren't with us last week. So uh, what are they re released from? Anybody? They're being released from jail. So these guys go into the temple court. They see a lame man. They pray for him. Uh, he's walking, leaping, praising God, attracts a crowd of a few thousand. They proclaim the gospel. It creates quite a stir. It says in the first part of chapter 4 that the priests and the captain of the temple... And the Sadducees are greatly annoyed. They arrest these guys, and they throw them in jail, and then they bring them out, and then they warn them, and they say, hey, guys, quit, knock this stuff off. Quit proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, we got a number of classic statements made in the, in the fourth chapter here, but this is the one that Peter said. He said, for we cannot, you're telling us to stop, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Those are the words of someone who has truly encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And so they are released, as it says in verse 23 where we're reading here, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is a powerful prayer. We're going to draw from this prayer to really look at how we can be better at praying. And it says here, as they're praying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So they begin to quote from Psalm 2, which is part of their prayer. Evidently, they had been studying it or talking about it. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So first of all, if I am shaken by God, and then second we'll look at, I will be unshaken by the world, and then thirdly, I will become a shaker of this world. So first of all, I, if I am shaken by God, we see that they are shaken by God. Verse 31, and the place was shaken. What this is is a manifestation of the presence of God. Now, how can I be shaken by God so that I am unshaken by this world? I need, here's your first uh, fill in the blank here, I need friends who stir up greater passion for God within me. I need friends who stir up greater passion for God within me. Let's talk about that passion here just for a minute. When I'm talking about this passion for God, having friends that stir up this passion for God, whatever you find the most pleasure in is your God. Let me say that again. Whatever you find the most pleasure in is your God. And what he's saying here and what I'm saying here is that you need people that will stir up an appropriate kind of passion for the only true and living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so let me ask you this. What do you find most pleasure in? If it's not God, then you have uh, an alternate God, small g, and it's called idolatry. That's what the Bible says, and that's one of our biggest problems. It's the root of our issues in our life is this idolatry, that we find greater uh, pleasure and our greatest passion is directed towards something other than God. And, uh, and so, and it's true about all of us. We all find ourselves 
with greater pleasure. We find greater pleasure in maybe our family or our jobs or some sporting event or season tickets or whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. What, what's wrong with those things is when those things are elevated in our lives from, from good things to, to God things, to ultimate things, where our, our greatest passion, our greatest pleasure is found in those things. And by the way, let me just say about all those things, those are all gifts from God. Everything in creation is a gift from God and is a pointer to God. And they were never meant to be a substitute for God. And so, and there's nothing wrong with finding a great deal of, uh, of pleasure in, in your team. I hope the Dallas Mavericks end it today. I hope they beat, uh, I hope they beat Miami. How, any Miami uh, fans? Okay. I, I find some pleasure in that. But that pleasure doesn't even come close to the pleasure I find in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many are going to go on vacation this summer? Okay. Um, there was a few that didn't raise your hand. So is your life one big vacation? Maybe you don't even need to go on vacation. So, okay, yeah, there you go. Uh, your life is one big vacation. And so you're going to find pleasure, but I'll guarantee you that no matter where you go, there's no pleasure like the pleasure that is found in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you understand that? Do you know that? Do you experience that? In His presence, it talks about the pleasures. There are pleasures evermore. There's an unbelievable pleasure. 16th chapter of Psalm makes that very clear. So there's a phenomenal pleasure. I find unbelievable pleasure in knowing God, walking with God, knowing that He's in my life. That's the essence of the Christian life. And so... I need friends who stir, stir up greater passion for God within me. By the way, let me, let me share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis that I quote a lot. But the reason why I quote it is because I really don't believe it 100%. I'm trying to get to where I really believe it 100%. I, I say I believe it, but I'm not living in the reality of that. My behavior doesn't reflect it. But the, the, the quote goes like this by C.S. Lewis. The man who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. I say, so I find a great deal of pleasure in God, but oftentimes I tend to add to Jesus, okay, today will be a great day, I've got Jesus, but if, if and then I begin to add to that list, if everything works out, and, and you know, whatever your list might be, you have your own list. When all my kids are happy, or my kids are doing well in school, then I'll be happy, I'll be content, or you put it into your marriage relationship, or any number of things. What is the criteria for your well-being, for your, for your happiness, for your deep joy? If any of those things hap happen to be something in creation and you've elevated that thing above the Creator, you are doomed. And you desperate need, as we all do, to have people, friends, who stir up greater passion for God within us. That so we would refocus and recalibrate our lives to say, hey, wait a minute... Wait a minute. Even when our hearts are being drawn away and we find greater excitement and passion in things, we need to remind ourselves, wait a minute, that's just a dim glimpse of what God offers me. And redirect that and, and use that and be thankful for that, but to, but to also say, hey, wait a minute, I, I need to be finding my deepest pleasure in Him and repent and get back on track of that. And that's what friends are about. Let me read that C.S. Lewis quote again. The man who has God in everything else, everything else, that, that's... <laughs> God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. Now, if I'm going to have, be shaken by God, I need friends who stir up greater passion for God within me. What was the very first thing that they did when they were released? 
was the very first thing. I started thinking about what would I do if I was in their shoes. First thing, I'd probably go out and buy a sword. That's what I would do. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm under persecution. You know, and maybe, maybe they would have went out and got drunk. Hey, let's just medicate this or whatever. Or I don't think they would have. But maybe those that were within that culture in dealing with their duress, their stress, their persecution, or pack up and leave, which they will shortly. Many of them will pack up and leave except for the apostles, ex- except for the leaders. Because persecution is about to break out into Jerusalem and they're going to have to pack up and leave. And by the way, that's part of God's divine design. Did you know that? Because God intended for them to to be scattered throughout the region to proclaim the gospel, but they're not. They're staying in their little holy huddle. So God's bringing down the hammer of persecution to scatter them, which causes me to think sometimes that God will scatter us because we feel pretty content where we are. We're not moving out. God wants to use us powerfully. And so what does he do? He brings a little persecution into our life and it scatters us. We have to move into maybe another job or or a new location where we're living or whatever it might be. And God is doing that out of his divine design so that you can have an impact in ways that otherwise you wouldn't have that impact. And that's what's going to happen here. What do you do when you're under duress? When you're stressed out? I know what you do. You go to that which, where you find most pleasure. It could be TV. It could be any number of things to try to help you to ease that. And it, it, it actually becomes a God substitute rather than to turn to God, to look to God, to maybe have people stir up within you that which would help you to focus on God. We tend to, uh, we tend to substitute God for a lot of things. And here's what's interesting is that when they were under duress here, Verse 23, they went to their friends and reported. First thing they did, they went to their friends and reported. And then verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So they had friends that they went and shared their lives. And then what did their friends do? They immediately pointed them to God. Man, you need to see God. We need to see God. We need to have an encounter with God. We need to be shaken by God. Now, this tells us a number of things. Here's the first thing is that they went to their friends, which tells us that they had established relationships before the crisis. Would you agree with that? Because they went to their friends, so they had already had friends, already established, and so they went, went to those friends, and they had already established relationships with those friends. Now, I have, as a pastor, and obviously, you know, certainly as a, as a medic, paramedic with Phoenix Fire for a number of years, uh, I've had a front row seat watching people in crisis. There's hardly a week that, that goes by that I don't see somebody, I don't have a front row seat in watching somebody in crisis. And here's what I found through, you know, the, the number of years, 20, 30 years that I've had experience just being there. And actually, it's been much further than that, longer than that. I'm 54, and so it started even early on in my life growing up in the church. And I saw this. I had a front row seat. My mom being involved in ministry. I was involved in ministry very young. This is what I've discovered. People who know the Lord are better off and respond better to crisis than people who don't know the Lord. I've seen that time and time again. If you don't know the Lord, I've seen people respond differently. They tend to medicate. They tend to hide. They, they tend to get away from whatever that is, or they try to reshape it in some way. I've also found this to be true, too is that uh, people who know the Lord plus have friends, close friends, that they can help to share the, the crisis with do better than those who only know the Lord. So it's one thing to know the Lord. I think that's a good thing. I think a very positive thing. But 
if you really understand what church life is about, church life is more than getting lost in a crowd. In fact, I, I just, just occurred to me, my wife told me that she uh, uh, talked with a gal this last week, and she said, the reason why I go to the big mega church here in the valley, there's a lot of mega churches, but the one right down the street here, she says, the reason why I go there is because nobody even knows me, and I can kind of slide in and slide out. I can just go and hide and then get out. And she didn't bother to, you know, Nancy didn't go in and, and talk with her any further about that. She'll have opportunity in the future to do that. But, but why would you want to do that? Because that's not church. See, you think that you have, you've attended church, you're part of church, but that's not actually church based on what the Bible actually teaches. Church is really about us doing life together. That we have, we have relationships at a deep level so that when we go through crisis, we have people there to support us, to love us, to encourage us. And I need that as much as you need that. And I have close relationships with people that know exactly what's going on in my life because I share those things with them. And you need to have those people that you can share those things with, but they keep pointing you to God. And they stir up within you greater and greater appetite, appetite for God. And so it's interesting. It, when you lose your job or diagnosed with cancer or lose a family member or face disaster is not the time to start shopping around for those who will pray for you. You don't wait until then. That's the reason why we really encourage small groups. We really encourage you to connect more than just what we do on, the, on, on weekend services. This church outgrew me. I know a lot of times people say, well, I'll just call Pastor Ray and he'll come over. And, and, and listen, Pastor Ray can't cover all the bases. I would love to be able to go to, and go to the hospital and, and cover as many bases as I can. This church outgrew me back in my home. <laughs> we moved from my home into the boys club and there's about 40 to 50 of us that outgrew me at that time. And it really required, and for us to be a successful church, a healthy church in which we have been, it really required for people to get off the bench and into the game and people to begin to in, get involved in each other's lives. And, so, and that's what we have here. That's what's going on. So let me ask you this. If you get slammed this next week, who are you going to turn to? Or, or let me reword that. When you get slammed, maybe not this next week, but eventually you will get slammed. You will get slammed. It's just a matter of time. Who will you, you turn to? Who's in your corner cheering you on and pointing you to Jesus? See, and that's what we see in this, in this story. They ran to their friends. And their friends pointed them, pointed them to God. Now, uh, here, there are a number of verses here that I gave you that are part of the cross-references that when you work through your growing notes, we have a number of small groups that go through the growing notes, but I would encourage you to do that. If you want to get this stuff deep into your heart, make it, a, make it very practical. But Acts 2, 42 through 47... The early church, the many that had just gotten saved, there's about 3,000 of them. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia. And it's more than just uh, coming to church, singing some songs, listening to the bald guy preach. You know, it's, it's more than that. It's about really connecting with each other at a deeper level. That's what that word fellowship, doing life together people that are there to support you. Fellowship to the breaking of bread, that's communion and going out to dinner and, then, and, and to prayers. And so you see that. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 have been a couple interesting verses that have stayed with me through the years. Hebrews 24 and 25, it goes like this. It says, let us consider, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. In other words, when we gather together in, in a closer setting, what should, what should come to my mind is how can I spur?
spur one another. How can I, how can I encourage, you know, whoever you get with, you, you begin to go through the names of the people. How can I encourage them to really live for God and to know God and to experience God and to be stirred up with a greater appetite for God? See, that's what should be our preoccupation when we gather together with other Christians. And then it goes on in those verses and says, And let us not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And the assembling there is more than just coming to weekend services. It's really in a, in a closer-knit close-knit setting and let us not neglect the assembling of ourselves together and let us encourage one another regularly, daily and, and it says as the day approaches meaning really the day of crisis the day of, of the end so to speak we're going to all face the end it might be our own personal end but all of this is going to end eventually the Bible makes that very clear and so we encourage each other so that we can have that endurance to take us to the end. So we run through the tape. And we need one another. And so they had, they went to their friends. They had established relationships before the crisis. But notice that they reported and they heard their report. So their friends, obviously it was a safe place so they could share. And their friends listened. And their friends pointed them to God. And then they lifted their voices together to God. Right, let me... Okay, it sounds like I'm kind of belaboring this point. Okay, I agree, but I think we need to get this. Many of you are already doing this. We have a really a high percentage of people that are involved in small groups that are really connecting at this deeper level. But even at that, even outside of the small groups, I mean, are you aware of the fact of, of that there are certain people in your life? Are you in touch with the people that refuel you and those who drain you, spiritually speaking? Okay, you guys know what I'm saying? Are you so in touch with your life that you say, wow, those people tend to point me the other direction, but these people point me to God? And, and, and are you aware of how that's affecting your life? And then how about you? What kind of a person are you in that smaller group setting or the people that you hang out with, whether it's structured or non-structured? I guess what I'm saying is that when people see, uh, are people happy when they see you coming or going? I mean, are, are you the type of person that, wow, it, you stir up appetite for God and a passion, and you show an unbelievable pleasure that you find in Him? Are you living that out? And that you pour that into people when you're in your small group. And it's important to know that, to know the people that refuel you, the people that drain you. By the way, it's more than just people. It can be certain movies, certain things. Um, I turned off a, a program last night. A lot of times I'm, I'm sitting and I'm reflecting and thinking. And, and sometimes we'll watch that. probably shouldn't do it the night before I come up and preach because it probably kind of hammers me a little bit. But it's at 48 hours. It's usually some murder mystery. And so uh, oftentimes I have to turn those off because it's just such negativity. And we were going to watch something else or we're going to watch the news. And ooh, talk about uh, negativity. And so we just, there are many times I just shut that stuff down. I'm too drained right now. I don't need that. I need to do that which refuels me and refocuses me on God. Are you aware of what's going on in your own life where you're able to do that? They obviously did. Because they had friends who stirred up greater passion for God within them. Here's the next thing. Prayer that seeks to know and treasure God above all. Prayer that seeks to know and treasure God above all. Now, you can learn a lot about a person by when, why, and what they pray. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy kind of eavesdropping sometimes and listening to what people are praying. 
Because it tells you a lot about the people. It tells you a lot about their relationship with God. So none of you are going to want to pray in front of me anymore, are you? He's paying attention. And what you need to do is get that out of your mind. I'm your least concern. He's paying attention. God listens to you. And this is about you and God. And maybe if you're praying for a group, it's certainly about them and you connecting with God at that time. But you can learn a lot about a person by when, why, and what they pray. For instance, if the only time that you pray is in crisis, that tells me that you really don't have much of a communion kind of relationship with God. If he's just a 911 kind of a God, and not a God that you just, that you're beginning to develop this habitual, uh, conscious communion with him, where you're just interacting with him throughout the day, you're missing out on the best part of the Christian life. And that's where you find the greatest pleasure is not just racing to him in times of crisis, but walking with him just on an ongoing basis and in this communion and this relationship with him. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of an indication of what your relationship with God is about. You can also tell a little bit about, you know, uh, why you pray. When you pray, is it for him to serve you to get you out of a jam or for you to serve him? Then no matter what jam you're in, you want to put on display his glory. In other words, is it about you or is it about God? That's the question. When I'm coming to the throne of grace, and yeah, I've got some problems, but what's your perspective? To, to, get, to get you out of the ringer or to put him on display in the ringer? Whatever that, that ringer might be, whatever the problem might be. Here's another, you know, what do you pray? And what's interesting, when you, when you hear what Jesus taught his disciples on how to pray, he spends most of his time in adoration as opposed to petition and intercession. And those are all parts of prayer, and there's nothing wrong with that. But he spends most of his time really teaching them how to adore God, understand who God is. And so, is your prayer time made up more of a petition list, or is it more made up of adoration and, and your love and this interaction, deep interaction with God? And it's not to... to to guilt trip you one way or the other. What, what it's to do is to get you to thinking that you're missing out on the best thing about your relationship with God. Prayer that seeks to know and treasure God above all. These Christians spent five verses in knowing and treasuring God and two verses in asking from God. And even what they asked from God is not what you would think. I mean, did you notice that? I mean, this is an incredible prayer because it, it gets to the root of, of their problems. Oh, 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 and it gets to the root of our problems. It shows us really what is the root of our problems as we manage life and as we work through life. Their life wasn't being shaken because of the civil authorities. Their problem was not the civil authorities and the persecution that was coming through the civil authorities. That, that was not, not their problem. But their life was being shaken because of what they had built their lives on. Your life is not being shaken because of your, your marriage or because of your kids going south or because of your loss of job or, or because of whatever's going down in your life. It's not that. That's not the cause. It's the occasion to reveal what you have built your life upon. And if you have built your life upon your marriage or your kids or your health or any number of things, it's a matter of time. You're going to be shaken in those things. And, and, and so you get a, really a good sense of this from what they're saying here and through this prayer. Yeah, the civil authorities, they could take their wealth, their homes, possessions, businesses. 
Civil authorities could take their freedom through imprisonment. Civil authorities could take their life through torture and death. But what they were saying is that our real problem is not the civil authorities threatening our wealth, freedom, and, and, and lives, but what our ultimate trust, hope, and love is in. What is your ultimate trust, hope, and love in? If it's in something that's temporal, it's going to be shaken. It's a matter of time. But if it's in something that is unshakable, your relationship with God, who God is for you, who walks through your day with you, then you can become unshakable to the degree that you understand and that you build your life on that foundation. Now, I love my wife. She's the best. Did she do a good job with the announcements? That's the sexiest those announcements have ever been. I wanted to run up here and just hang out with her. And, uh, and you guys, you know, if you know my wife, most of you would agree with me that I married way over my head. And those that don't even know my wife would say, yeah, you married way over your head regardless, okay? <laughs> That's cool. I'm cool with that. But this is what you need to know. My wife, though I love her dearly, um, she does not complete me. Sorry, Jerry Maguire. Wasn't that in that movie? Tom Cruise, you complete me. That's messed up. Okay, that, that is, and that's our society. You complete me. You've heard me say this many times before, that if I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own through Christ, all of my relationships become an effort to complete myself. If I'm not complete as I'm coming into this relationship with my wife, then I'm going to be extremely needy. And I was for many, many, many years. I mean, we, we figured out what our love languages were because we thought, oh, that's the solution. Love languages. Oh, you're not speaking my love language and I'm not speaking yours. Hers was acts of service and mine was affirmation. She didn't give me affirmation. She did a lot of acts of service. And I gave her a lot of affirmation and no acts of service. And so you could see the conflict that was going on in our relationship. So we learned that and we were still kind of both empty because... More me than her, but I had turned her into a God substitute. I tried to get from her what ultimately I should have been getting from God, that sense of completeness and contentment in Him. And for, for too long, I was kind of like this guy, this story here. I felt like the guy who wasn't feeling well. So he goes to see his doctor. The doctor examines him and then asks to speak with his wife. The doctor tells his wife that her husband has cancer. The wife asks, can he be cured? The doctor replies, there's a chance he can, we can cure him with chemotherapy, but you will need to take care of him every day for the next year. Cooking all of his meals, cleaning up the vomit, changing the bedpan, driving him to the hospital for daily treatments, and so on. When the wife comes out to the waiting room, the husband asks her what the doctor said. And the wife answers, he said that you're going to die. Now, that's a, that's a bad joke, okay? I know it's a bad joke, but I'm going to make a spiritual point with that joke. And here's my spiritual, here's my spiritual point. I think it goes in line with what we're talking about here. You build your life on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to die. If you put these expectations, as I did for many years on my, my wife, she could never meet my expectations. I'm a perfectionist. My goodness. Not only that, I was trying to get her to meet needs that ultimately I needed to be turning to God to meet. 
And I was operating in this relationship out of incompleteness rather than completeness. And she was, had her own measure of that because my identity, though, was, was really wrapped up in her and my job and this church and, you know, a number of, a few other things. Hers was wrapped up in the home and the kids. So it was really quite interesting, the dynamics of that, as we tried to work through that. And we both had to, to replace these God substitutes with the true and living God. And since then, I've found amazing pleasure and purpose and passion in Him. And then out of that fullness, we've been able to appropriately minister to one another and create a great, a great home and a great environment, uh, unlike we did before. Totally amazing. And, uh, and so... If you build your life on anything other than God, you're going to die. And here's the idea. And, and, and let, me, let, me kind of, let me give you a little bit of the vision of what Desert Breeze is about. I shared this with our leaders, those that were in our leadership last weekend. Once a month we have a leadership meeting for all of our small group leaders. They usually go off into one of the rooms here. I had an opportunity to come in there. Darren had all of the leaders to come in and share a little vision. Vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. Here's my vision for us here at Desert Breeze. It ain't a new building. It, ain't any, it doesn't have anything to do with kind of structure or anything like that. I believe that God's going to lead us and all that. But whether we have a building or not, it doesn't matter. What matters more than anything is that this is happening, what I'm going to share with you. And uh, this, was a, this was the quote that I read. Uh, this was actually from Piper, John Piper, in, in a quote. And this is what he said. He said, the greatest need for pastors and missionaries, and I would add Christians, that's all of us, the greatest need today is that we know and enjoy God and that we see and savor the glory of God. And then he quotes from this guy, uh, Charles Meisner, M-I-S-N-E-R, a scientific specialist in general relativity theory, expressed Albert Einstein's view of preaching like this. This is really quite interesting. He said, I do see the, the design of the universe as essentially a religious question, that is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as basically a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had been he had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. Einstein died in 1955. If he were alive today, his indictment would be even stronger because today we have the Hubble telescope sending back infrared images of galaxies of the 50 billion that may exist from as far away, they say, as 12 billion light years. 12 billion times 6 trillion miles. God spoke that into being. It is a playground for the Almighty. And over against this majesty, we have a steady diet on Sunday morning of practical how-tos and psychological soothing and relational therapy that betrays sooner or later that the preachers do not know God as they ought and do not regard Him as infinitely glorious and worthy of one focused hour a week. They are just not talking about the real thing. End of quote. Even though God Himself has spoken to them and said, To whom then will you compare me? He continues on in this. I bring out their host, all the stars in all 50 billion galaxies by number. 
calling them all by name. The Bible says that that's God's familiarity with all that he has created by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Isaiah 40, 25 through 26. Einstein felt instinctively if the God of the Bible exists and if pastors and missionaries and I would add Christians, all of us, really know him and count him their greatest treasure, then something is profoundly wrong. They are just not talking about the real thing. While people are starving for the majesty of God, it's what we need more than anything. A God-entranced view of life that we begin to see all of life through this vision, this perspective of God. That we begin to see the majesty and the greatness and the beauty of God that far exceeds any pleasure or any problem that we face. That's what we need to see. We need to see God. That's what he's saying here. He says what's wrong is that knowing God better than we know anything else and treasuring God more than we treasure anything else is not the passion of many pastors and missionaries and Christians. See, that, my vision for Desert Breeze, man, you would have an encounter with God. When you come in here, you see Him and you savor Him so that you can go out of here and show Him in ways you've never shown Him before. It has revolutionized my life. I have been shaken to the core of my being by the living God. And He continues to shake my life regularly and consistently. When I study this, His Word, when I worship, when I spend time with other Christians, He shakes me to the core of my being. And there's nothing more pleasurable. There's nothing better than knowing Him. Here's how you can tell whether or not you're being shaken by God. This is important. You suddenly realize that apart from God, apart from God, I have nothing. You come to the place where you are saying, nothing is more important than my relationship with God. There's no money, there's no sex, no job, sport, hobby, accomplishment. There is nothing that comes close, measures up to, by far, even comes anywhere close to knowing God, experiencing God, finding my contentment and completeness in God. To the degree you experience this God quake is to the degree you won't be afraid of losing anything. Did you hear me? The more God shakes you, the less the world is going to shake you. The more the world is shaking you, the less God is shaking you. If you're shaken up over the things that are happening in your life, you need a shaking by God. You need for Him to shake you. That's what's happening in this story. I mean, it's an amazing story. See, it's the acid test of real Christianity. If you're filled with inordinate anxiety, anger, depression... If the world is shaking you, then you haven't seen much of the reality of God. You desperately need to see God. That's my prayer for you. That's what we need more than anything. It doesn't matter what building we meet in. If you're not seeing God, if you're just checking the box, going through the motions, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do us any good. We need Him. We need to see Him. And so that's what's happening in here. I love it. You guys are really quiet. <laughs> because you're thinking... And you're absorbing this. And this is so true. Okay. That takes us next to the next point. I will be unshaken by this world. I will be unshaken by this world. With these next couple points, we, we pick up a little bit. And, and what we're talking about here is in the ultimate sense. That doesn't mean you're not going to have sorrow and not going to grieve. I'm talking the difference between sorrow and despair. You're not going to be in despair. You don't need to be in despair. Yes, you will sorrow, have sorrow, you will grieve. Look at what the next fill in the blank is. This is not a denial of reality. 
When I say that you'll be unshaken by the world, we're not talking about denying reality in any way. Because they weren't. Verse 23, they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Verse 29, listen to the part of their prayer. Lord, look upon their threats. Give us boldness. So what does that mean? You don't pray for boldness unless you're frightened. You don't pray for strength unless you're weak. So being shaken is not a denial of the reality that we're in. It's an acceptance of the reality. But it's embracing something much bigger than the reality of the crisis. We'll get to that in a minute. Let me, and that's what I love about Christianity. It doesn't deny it. It's, it accepts it. It acknowledges it. They came and reported it to their friends. They even pray it to God. But John sixteen thirty three, Jesus told his disciples, In this world you will have troubles. You'll have problems. Then he goes on. He says, But take heart. Take heart. In the midst of the reality, take heart. I have overcome the world. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, and then I'm going to read uh, verses 16 through 18. Really phenomenal stuff. He's just kind of accepting the reality of what's all around us. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? God. What's the jars of clay? It's us. Yeah. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jar of clay is pretty fragile. And he goes on, he goes through this list. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. What is he saying? We bounce back. It's a bounce back moment. We bounce back. I'm good. That's what he's saying here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I jump to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. I'm telling you this this morning so that you do not lose heart. Many of you are going through an unbelievable crisis. Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. How many are as old as I am and you recognize that your outer self is wasting away? Yeah, we had a group of youth sitting up here. There's a couple of youth sitting right here. And I always, when I see the youth, there's a few youth sitting right here. And I always just say to them, when I say that your outer self is wasting away, well, your outer self is not wasting away, but eventually it will. And I can't hardly wait. <laughs> That's what I told the group of youth that were sitting up here in the first service, because then I'm going to say, hey, see, it happened to you too. And some of us, it happened to us way too early. I started wasting away, losing my hair just as soon as I graduated from high school. I was just like, wow. And to them, we usually start wasting away, usually hitting at about, about 30. 30 is that optimum. That's where the athletes, a lot of these athletes, like Michael Jordan trying to come back when he was 40. No way. Couldn't do it. He'd already wasted away. Of course, he could outplay any of us, certainly. But uh, that's what he's talking about there. There's that, there's that wasting, wasting away. And he says, he says, for our outer selves, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Here's an experiment for you, just to get this point across. When you go home today, cook a chicken, sit it out on your uh, table and leave it there, not just one day or two days or one week or two weeks, but leave it out there for about six months. What is happening to that chicken? What will happen to that chicken? Second law of thermodynamics. 
And the same is true about everything on this planet. But when you're looking at that chicken, you are looking at yourself. Because that's what's happening to you. Any biologist, any physicist will tell you the same thing. That that's what's happening to us. We are wasting away. You are inevitably falling apart. And it doesn't matter how much you exercise. I'm into exercise. I love to exercise. And eat right. I try to eat right. Or how many vitamins. I take vitamins. Or how much you color your hair. I don't color my hair, okay? I have no hair to color. You are falling apart. Everything is falling apart. Second law of thermodynamics. Don't put your hope and love and trust in temporal things. Put it in the eternal, in the Lord God Almighty, in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when you build your life upon these temporal things, as those temporal things, second law of thermodynamics, begins to take place, so goes your life. So goes your love. So goes your hope. So goes your trust. Put your hope in Him. See, that's what he's saying here. And it's phenomenal. He says, for this light and momentary affliction. He, that's what he describes it. Yeah, you're, we're wasting away. But in really, we're being renewed day by day. But our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. My goodness sakes, that's wonderful. I keep my eyes. That's what he says. He says, where do we fix our eyes? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's good. Good stuff. And so we need to, we need to recalibrate. We need that. We need to refocus. And so, this is not a denial of reality. Next, fill in the blank. But embracing God's loving, wise control in reality. This is big. And I don't even have time to really get into a lot of this. The implications of this. We'll study the sovereignty of God and the providential hand of God down the road. But, but this is what he's talking about in this prayer. I mean, in verses 29 through 30, he's appealing to God's uh, love, miracles of mercy. Verse 24, 27, verses 24, 27, 28, he's showing God's wisdom as creator, working his plan. Verse 25 and 26, God has ultimate control no one can thwart his plan. That's what he's saying there in verses 25 and 26. So here's the point. When I've shared this with you, we shared this uh, point with you back during the series in Habakkuk. And so here's the point. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. Now, sounds like a great statement, but I don't always live in the reality of that. Why is that? I have way too much anxiety. I have way too much regret over the past. I have way too much, all kinds of stuff that's happening in my life. Thinking that I should have, I would have. You know, all these different things that happen. I'm not resting in the providential hand of God. If I, if I were, I could make this, God in His love always wills what is best for me. He loves me. This was Father filtered what has happened to me. In His wisdom, He knows what is best. He knows exactly what I need. He's giving me opportunity to increase my joy in Him. I can find deep joy in Him regardless of what is going on in my life. And He's trying to show me that. And then His sovereignty has the power to do it. Now, how do we know that is a fact? What do we rely on? The cross. The cross. Can you imagine what the disciples were experiencing at the foot of the cross? All their love, hope, trust, gone. 
three days later, resurrected. The greatest feat that has ever happened on this planet Earth to, to wipe out, to destroy, to come against death and sin and Satan and to bring to us fullness of life. What is that saying to us? That he can take our crucifixions, our trauma, our crisis and turn them into resurrections. That's what it's saying. He could take what seemingly looks bad, the circumstances of our life, and work them for our good and His glory. He, he, he quotes here in this prayer, Psalm 2. And basically, Psalm 2, if you ever study it, it's a phenomenal psalm. He's basically saying that God who sits in the heavens, He laughs. He laughs at all the, the planning and all the schemes of men. God is in control of even sinful deeds of men and causes them to backfire using them for his own purposes and plan. Did you notice that in verses 27 28? Let's look, look at if you've got your Bible open. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, talking about Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What? They didn't, well, they did evil. It was part of God's divine, sovereign design. I mean, there's so much, so much to that. And you see further earlier on in this text, see the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, verse 11. God can turn our crucifixion, our problems into a resurrection. That's why we've got Genesis 50, 20. Remember Joseph? He looked at the perpetrators right in their eyes, his brothers who had sold him into slavery years before, and now he's in second command of all of Egypt. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for what is now being done to saving of many lives. Romans 8, 28, for we, know that, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I mean, that's phenomenal. Do you believe that? If you believe that, I... I I don't even have time to go through it, but I mean, the implications of that. My plans are limited. My pain has purpose. My prayer has impact. Believing in the providential hand of God relieves me from anxiety, frees me from explanation. I mean, you're not going to understand it. You're not going to understand how He works all those things out. The providence of God isn't something to be conquered, but to be celebrated. And that's what we see them doing in this prayer. Totally amazing. Let me read to you this. I think that maybe help you to understand a little bit of what God's doing in your life. It's called the weaver's poem. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who leave the choice with him. Last point. And then we're going to take communion this morning. So, if I am shaken by God, I will be unshaken by this world and become a shaker of this world. Acts 1.8, he says, he told them that they will receive power and be his martyrs, his witnesses. 
Acts 17.6 basically describes this early church, this small band of believers who grew into thousands. They, they literally turned the world upside down. So how do we do that? What, what would be the result of our lives if we've truly been shaken by God, unshaken by the world? How do we shake the world? So I was thinking about this, and this is the statement I put down. Everything you, everything you learned about evangelism, you learned in kindergarten. Huh? Yeah. Show and tell. There you have it. Look, the immediate result of their prayer was, their, their prayer for boldness was show and tell. That's your two fill in the blanks. Deeds and words. Demonstration, proclamation of the gospel. Is there a demonstration, proclamation of the gospel in your life? Verses 32 through 35, they had everything in common. So it's really talking about their money, their wealth. They didn't have much wealth, but they, they leveraged their resources for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they, they continued, verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. These two are inseparably connected. These people boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and then they put their money where their mouth is. Now, let me just talk with you just briefly about money. Because we don't talk about it that much around here. It's always good for us to talk about it because it's in the text. I'm amazed at how generous this church is and we don't even pass a plate. And I've always been told by a lot of guys out there, said, you need to pass a plate because you actually get more. Well, I don't want to get more because we're passing a plate. I want, to get, I want people to give more because God has shaken their life and they have, they have been transformed and they're giving for the right reason. And I think, that's, I think maybe that's why we are really much higher than a lot of the stats that are out there because most of you, if not all of you, really understand the right reason for giving. And we don't have to pass a plate. We've got a box on the back and, and you faithfully and generously give. But listen to some of these stats as it relates to our society today. I mean, because it's evident in our society today there's a lot of people that have yet to been shaken by God. Well, this is actually from Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill. He's doing a series currently on Luke, and this is what he said just a couple weeks ago. He said, roughly 25% of Jesus' teaching was about money, finances, wealth, possessions. So that would be about once every four weeks we would talk about money. But we don't talk about it that often if we were to keep up uh, the pace with, with Jesus. He goes on, and this is what he says. He uses some stats that are really quite interesting here. He says... Uh, that often people say, when I make more, I'll start giving, or I'll start giving more. But statistically, the more you make, the less you give. Did you know who gives the most uh, generously in America today? It's not, it's not the wealthy. It's actually the middle class and, and, and the lower. That's what he's saying. It's the, the less you make, the more you actually give uh, based, or the less, the less you make, yeah, it's actually the poor that actually, the more you make doesn't necessarily constitute. If you're not giving with what you've got currently, you're not going to give when you start making more, which was really quite interesting, and I, I believe that to be true. I've seen that. And then he went on and he said, 20% of U.S. Christians give nothing every year. 20%. The vast majority of U.S. Christians give about 3%, and 12% of U.S. Protestants give 10% or more, which just tells me that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who really aren't. They've yet to be really shaken by God. And what's interesting, when you study the Scripture, Old Testament uh, saints gave tithes, offerings, and alms. And, and, and that's certainly a great rule of thumb, and, and Jesus commended that in Matthew 23, 23. But what we see here happening with these New Testament saints is that they're kind of living, because they're living under the New Covenant, there's, there seems to be even greater generosity because of the greater blessing. And they have kind of this mindset of whatever it takes kind of giving. Whatever it takes. And if, if they saw a need, they gave whatever it took to meet that need, which seems to even exceed the, the giving of that Old Testament. So why don't, why don't more people here in America today 
uh, give like that. I think it's because we're scared. We're afraid. And it's because we have built our sense of identity upon uh, money and the significance and the security of money rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. But these folks were liberated from their fears because they had been shaken by God. If I am shaken by God, I will be unshaken by this world and become a shaker of this world. It's inevitable. And two things, I will begin to show and tell the gospel to this world. Let me end. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have three uh, stations for communion. If you're not a believer, you could just sit and relax and then you can exit quietly as we proceed here in just a few moments. If you're a believer... You'll have opportunity to come up to one of these stations. There will be bread given to you. Take the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus for you. And then the cup represents his shed blood for you. You dip the bread in the cup. And this is what I want you to think of as you're doing this. This is what you're saying. Because of his death for me. Because his death for me. And many of you are yet to be shaken this morning, even from this message. And I want you to be shaken before you leave here. I want, as you take communion, that God would shake you to the core of your being. And, and as you are shaken, this will be your attitude. And I believe this was the sentiment of this early church as they are being threatened. And it's called the fellowship of the unashamed. So I'm going to read this. And we're going to end. We'll turn the lights down. They're going to take communion. And then after you've taken communion, you can hang out here for a while or you can exit quietly. But I want you to think about this. The fellowship of the ashamed, unashamed. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chancy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudence, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, my mission clear, I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder the pool of the popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes, and when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I am not ashamed of the gospel. May that be true for all of us here at Desert Breeze Community Church. God bless you.